Okay. Um, today's episode is with Plants for Non. And a lot of you know, if you follow me on social media, that I, <laughs> me and Plants post each other's stuff all the time. And we're going to brainstorm and we're going to get to know Plants. Or do you want to, I mean, your name has been out there. You want to use your real name, your first name? Yeah, sure. Yep. My name's Derek. Um, yeah. You want to talk about yourself a little bit like uh yeah. who is Derek because a lot of people are like who is Derek <laughs> yeah sure yep um so yeah um I am uh a Marxist Marxist Leninist and I uh I'm uh my background is I'm I'm black descendant of slavery Chamorro and Irish um so i've got a uh, i've got revolution uh my background on all fronts uh my peoples as as you do and yeah uh, i'm a i'm a cultivator i'm a um uh mainly cannabis cultivator and breeder is my that's my passion and my uh and my craft and but I also am very passionate about food cultivation, specifically regenerative food culture cultivation, but also yeah, regenerative in everything I do, uh, agriculture cultivation wise. And uh, yeah, and that's uh, that's those are my main things. And I'm a big uh, I'm a big surf everything guy. Also, that's another <laughs> big thing. Hip, yeah. hip hop and surf everything that includes skate to me skateboarding snowboarding uh that's all surfing on different surfaces yeah i want to go back to something you said you're um is it chamorro right yeah yep sorry for those who don't know chamorros uh we're we're the indigenous people of guam which is the um east the furthest west from the quote-unquote mainland colonized uh land by the united states yeah so that's something i guess people didn't know about you so you do have indigenous you are indigenous right in a sense because that's part of people like to think that indigenous peoples are just people on mainland uh u.s they don't understand that there's also, you know, the U.S. colonized, you know, Puerto Rico, Alaska, you know, Hawaii, Guam, Samoan Islands, you know. And um, if I'm missing any anything else, please tell me. But the Marshall Islands, right? And uh, that, yeah. So I, I know we, you know, you we we have spoken about this earlier. You told me about your. I don't know if you want to talk to me about your grandma or talk to people about your grandma, but you have really cool stories. It's up to you want to mention that yeah um i'm very proud of my my nana so yeah i'll i'll um and she's uh kind of the she's like the matriarch of our family so i would, I would love to pay uh pay homage to her she's a very special person she was um interned by the japanese during world war ii when the japanese occupied uh guohan we we call our island Guam, um, uh, Guam is like the 
you know, anglicized version. Uh, and yeah, she, she escaped. She was, uh, our, her father was, a, her family was able to send her to the States to boarding school to escape the occupation. And she ended up staying here. And that's, uh, um, one of the reasons I'm here. So yeah, yeah, she, and she's, yeah, an incredible person. A, she's a mathematician, um, and just an all around great, great person. That's, that's amazing. That, that's a, you know, um, pretty cool story, you know, hearing, cause I didn't know anything like these things about you until we started speaking to you. I started speaking to, you, you know, you know, you know, here and there. And I, I was just like, you know, plants is also native, like, his grandma has really interesting stories too. And to me, you know, people just see this profile online and they don't know these things about you. And I really do thank you for sharing that, you know, people knowing a little bit more about you. Um, so my next question would be, what brought you, how do you become politically the way you are, your development, a Marxist or just, you know, um, liberty, you know, uh, liberation theory or theory in general yeah um so i'll start off by saying i guess like for us colonized people it seems to be you know uh it seems to come pretty naturally coming around to these uh liberation movements uh and adopt adopting liberation ideologies like politically because it's uh because our existence ne necessitates it <laughs> essentially uh we and it's our legacy in a lot of cases uh you know in in most cases like it's our legacy uh fighting against colonialism and by extension er, er, capitalism and by extension colonialism uh so there's always that uh kind of mis mistrust of i guess like european colonial society ingrained since i was like very young uh there's always that you know skepticism in our communities like we're all very wary of uh the institutions that exist i, I feel like naturally so coming from that my parents are liberals so like they um you know i come from a liberal my whole family, uh, I didn't learn Marxism from my family. So I, I grew up with the uh, being inculcated with uh, with liberal ideology and at least being left-leaning liberal, you know, quote-unquote left-leaning. I think that, like, uh, that's, there is, like, left-leaning liberals do have seemingly the most revolutionary potential potential that to adopt revolutionary uh ideologies and um so yeah i always already leaned towards that with like being uh, being pro all social rights you know gay rights and uh racial racial equality um but yeah i went from there funny enough uh uh, it's funny to me now for where I am. My the first Marxist, I was really like I was aware of W. E. B. Du Bois, 
I never read like his whole autobiography or Black Reconstruction, um, but I was always aware like uh, of him uh, through my family. My family, you know, claim, uh, supposedly we're related to to Du Bois, but uh, you know, I'm not quite I'm not quite sure about that claim. <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, because my family has a different spelling but like my my other grandmother who is uh and also a very amazing and inspiring person uh she her last name is de bose spelled differently but um as many people know from slavery and the inherent illiteracy of not being uh allowed to read um there's a lot of different spellings in the black community of names. Uh, mm -hmm. So supposedly that we're, we're somehow related to voice somehow, uh, but I'm not sure about that, but, but yeah, so he's the only revolutionary, I think, or like Marxist who I would say I had familiarity with, and I didn't even know that he was a Marxist. So the first uh, Marxist I came into, to contact with uh or like listen to speak and then later read a couple of his books was michael hudson um who i who i say is like a although i i don't take his his position on a lot of uh yeah on a lot of issues um uh to my understanding, he's uh, you know, he's a, he's actually Trotsky's godson, so he's you know wow. I guess I guess a Trotskyist. Uh, yeah, yeah, funny. He's, like he's in real actually, life. Yeah. Yep. He's uh, he's Trotsky's <laughs> oh godson. Um, yeah. He's Did he's actually really like I don't agree with him on everything, but he uh, he I he's actually an incredibly interesting person to me. He's sort of like a Julian Assange type character, except he also has a really interesting background and he's just uh you have to give it to him that he's a very intelligent guy mm -hmm. um uh he so he if anyone's familiar not familiar with his work he um he was a balance of payments economist for jp morgan chase so he mm -hmm. he's kind of like a whistleblower for all things having to do with finance economics in the united states but and then, and of course, that has implications for the whole world because the United States is a hegemony, and the United States financial system is the economic hegemony of the world. So he's actually, I consider him a even though, like uh, you know, I think there's limits to him. He has limits as a theorist. Uh, his analysis uh, analyses are very. Um, very informing like it, it gives you a really good idea of uh, you know, a lot of other people have written about it but uh he goes into a lot of detail about the inner workings of the financial system the global financial system uh and a lot of other things um but yeah so he was the first person i came to came to read and then from there i read marx uh, i found uh, because he would talk about reading Marx. So um, I picked up Das Kapital, and the first time I read it, I didn't.
quite understand the second two volumes, but like, yeah, um, labor theory of value was very, uh, it's very intuitive, <laughs> I think. Mm -hmm. Labor theory of value, it's just very clearly uh, correct. Um, and uh, yeah, so eventually like got through Capital and and from there, there's a lot of stuff, uh, Lenin, um, Lenin and then kind of later got into, um, into anti-colonial struggles and mm -hmm. uh, black liberation struggle. Uh, so I think the, so the first of everyone I read was Huey Newton and then a friend recommended to me uh, Revolutionary Suicide by Huey Newton. Um, and then a friend recommended to me Blood in My Eye by, uh, by George Jackson. Um, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, George Jackson, correct, yeah. Um, and from there, uh, yeah, Mao as well, like we read On Contradictions. I read some weird stuff that I, you know, like Zizek, you know, I think Zizek's a pretty good writer, but, um, you know, not necessarily one of the, any, anywhere near like a core, uh, any core theoretical or analytical works for me. Um, and then, yeah, and then I read Fanon after, after knowing, after real, uh, knowing that that was Fanon was uh, the influence for George Jackson and um, and the the Black Panthers Huey Newton and and uh, Bobby Seale. Uh, so yeah, Fanon gave me that really core anti-colonial um, understanding. And then I uh, yeah, and and then there's also like I've also always had an affinity towards uh, the anti-colonial struggle of indigenous people on this continent uh, mm -hmm. because it's just like, it's so intertwined. It's, uh, I guess, easier when you're non-white to to sympathize, but like uh, throughout my whole life, I always sympathize with the struggle of uh, native peoples. It just always uh, felt intuitively wrong that uh, I was like, why is this country built on other people's countries? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so you kind of, I don't know, it's pretty intuitive, uh, but, um, yeah, uh, so yeah, from there, it's just branched out to everything, you know, now, now I'm just delving it, trying to, uh, always be on the self-education, uh, stuff and, and learning more about liberation theory, you know, some current reads have been like bell hooks and, and digging into all of Gerald Horn's work has been mm -hmm. huge. And and I have so a lot of stuff. I have a book sent waiting for me uh, at, at my mom's house for, uh, I have a Taiyaki Alfred book and the great, uh, and the great father. Right. Oh yeah. That's a good great book. Father. Great father's a good, yeah. Yeah. So that's, those are up next for me. Um, yeah. So that's what, I, what I've moved on to. Yeah. So that's my whole thing. <laughs> Sorry. Those, <laughs> that's, that's my whole, whole journey. <laughs> damn i was like damn dude was like, i'm like picturing in my head <laughs> the whole time <laughs> yeah so what you know like um it's wild because 
you know, when I, when we, um, I don't know even how how we met online, but we did, and I was like, this dude has some really good takes. What the fuck? <laughs> so, <laughs> and then I just, you know, we start, we start, yeah, and you know, we connected, and this is a question, you know, that's on on my list right now that you, you know, I want to ask you. But I'm going to ask. I'm going to skip one question to go to this one. One topic that we talk about is obviously decolonization, and you being, you know, black. I've asked you, <clears throat> oh, we brainstormed in the past, uh, you know, you know, what is, um, black, how is black liberation? What's the role of that within decolonization? You know, do you want, you know, I'll let you answer that. Yeah. Um, uh, pretty complicated, right? Like for me delving into Gerald Horn's work, specifically has gotten has really helped me develop my understanding that's what i would say to any viewer like if you just want to understand the contradictions of the western hemisphere uh he's like kind of he, he doesn't obviously he's not a whatever on is it onomatopoeia is that the word uh you know maybe but uh i don't know he's not a he's not all you should read but he he for me has given me the the most broad understanding of the contradictions of the western hemisphere uh politically historically um yeah he's just that he's just a really good historian and really changing the narrative uh to include things like black liberation struggle in the history the tellings of history that are absent from the mainstream from the from the institutions, our educational institutions, the media, like, you know, as, as we're always talking about, it seems like, you know, we're the, we, it's, it's sad. It feels like we're the only ones talking us in a small group of people, only ones talking about these issues. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's a deep, uh, deep misunderstanding of history in the Western hemisphere. Uh, people don't understand their history here, I don't think. And yeah, Gerald Horn is the that remedy for that. And that, yeah, that's where my understanding of black liberation struggle has, and, and its relation to anti-colonialism has come from, it, you know, from other things, but now really all culminating in uh, reading Dr. Horn's work. Uh, I think, In his work, why I mention it is it really uh, draws those parallels between the the struggle and shows where historically uh, black liberation movements and indigenous liberation movements have been intertwined. Uh, they we've we've allied with each other to struggle against European colonial capitalism and uh, and the legacy of manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery this this all the whole system um is a system of oppressing black and indigenous people so of course i think it it's inextricably linked the the two things are inextricably linked in the struggle against european colonialism yeah yeah i mean um i read my first dr horn book this during this Christmas break, 
um, obviously to prepare for the interview. It was really good. It was the dawning of the apocalypse. Um, you know, and reading that book, I had I realized I had misconceptions about history myself. You know, I had the misconception that you know Europeans came to this continent, started colonizing, and then that's when the slave trade happened after the initial contact. You know, but I but you know reading that book, it was the opposite. Colon settler colonization and colonization started with the slave trade. You know, a long time before. Um, Europeans even came to this continent, right? And I was just like, God damn it! Like I, like I had a misconception. But that's that's what's good about reading and you know learning. And people like Dr. Horn and their research um, is that we have people correcting our misconceptions, and we have these misconceptions obviously because the education system here in the West, you know, they want us to buy into their narrative, you know. So yeah. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I agree with you, but, you know, when it comes to like, uh, lib uh, uh, you know, black liberation on this continent, you know, we talk about, you know, like, uh, like new Africa and like, in like nation building with, within the black population, you know, of people that were descendants from, from slavery. And it's, it's really hard to say that because like people have, you know, in, in like, uh, me and you, we had, um, Twitter spaces where somebody has said, don't call me a descendant of slavery as fucked up. But it's like, how do I how do I classify the people that came here that were brought here forcibly by colonization? What is a term I can use? You know? And I, you know, so yes, this is a clear clear that up. I don't know if you want to make a comment before I keep going. Yeah, I'll totally comment on New Africa. Um yeah, for me, I think there's like a to, to, for me, the, the idea is sound, like in terms of black nationhood, and which is just a different iteration from, you know, uh, I don't think that's what the Black Panthers called it, but that's what that's what they were fighting for. They're fighting for black nationhood here and uh, sovereignty because um, we didn't bring ourselves here. And, you know, the, now that we're here, it's like all. all all we want is our own, our 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 right to self determination and uh, being able to shape our own future. Uh, but it there's, I think the idea just hasn't been fleshed out enough, and and it also lacks the people developing this movement for New Africa generally. I don't think are in communication enough with indigenous the indigenous nations of this continent and that like so there's i see contradictions there i i see a lot of the maps that people draw of what they conceive new africa to be which is the black belt um and for that to be black america's landed sovereignty to me uh, we've talked about this uh we we i think agree that it's a very limiting uh limiting solution to to uh achieving black landed so sovereignty i think that we shouldn't put the cart before the horse and uh like uh gerald horn mentioned 
like giving i feel like he did a good job of giving us an idea of what nation what the uh in the interview that is that we did with him uh asking him about the colonial question in this hemisphere uh and him citing the lancaster agreements uh i think we we should be able to I think that's more priority than conceptualizing new Africa is what well, well, a part of it a, a net rather a necessary part of it is like understanding what the overall agreement is going to be for the continent, which is for me primarily returning sovereignty to indigenous peoples over mm -hmm. the land and Black sovereignty, for me, it can't impede on Cherokee or Choctaw sovereignty, uh, for example, just, just for to name two ex examples of nations whose land would is included in the in a lot of models for the uh, for new Africa. So yeah, I think that's, I think there's a lack of dialogue there in 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 cre creating those ideas those plans for new africa mm -hmm. and that's the problem that i see with it uh, other than that uh i support black uh, like i want uh black nationhood for this continent yeah uh, that's that's uh, black descendants of slavery we're, we're entitled to self-determination uh and our own nationhood uh, but what that looks like, I think, yeah, we need to do a lot more work about as to figuring out what that actually looks like. Yeah. Um, I, I like how you said, you know, you, when you brought up the Black Panthers, the first point I think is to determine our own destiny. And I think that is nation building. Right? That's a, like the foundation, right? And I, you know, I, I, I ask people, you know, I, was called, I talk a lot a lot about decolonization and I try not to speak for other communities like for the black community but you know we have to realize that um, I guess I'll go into new Africa or the black belt before I get into my you know my initial so like you know in back in the you know back in the day the communist party uh, I, um, proposed the idea of a black belt where the south will be giving to this black nation you know but you know my concern with that you know reading that was <clears throat> that there are, are native communities in the south <laughs> so what's going to happen you know what's going to happen are they going to get you know relocated again you know and I, I i felt like this idea that was created by the communist party which is a seller party right um by white people right um creating this idea is without consulting native people was a little bit like hard to read or you know cringe <clears throat> but i think that um when I, when I talk about decolonization i envision you know there is 574 sovereign nations now just in the u.s this is not including canada and mexico which there are other indigenous sovereign communities in these areas right in canada and mexico but right now right now let's just focus on the u.s so there's 574 nations within the u.s now and we have a black sovereign nation, we call, whatever you want to call it, New Africa, whatever. I mean, that is another nation that is sovereign amongst the 
amongst the other, you know, indigenous nations. And I totally support that. What a hundred percent, because we cannot have decolonization or liberation for on this continent without talking about black sovereignty. Right. So we need to, we need the native population too. So this is where like alarm bells are going to be ringing out. Ging, 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 ging. The haters are going to come in, you know, especially the Chicanos are going to be like, oh, Rick, you know, supports New Africa, but he doesn't support Chicano Nation. No, because Chicano Nation is based on settler colonial ideas, which is Mexican nationalism, which goes back to Vasconcelos and eugenics that is rooted in like, you know, colonial ideas. Uh, this Black sovereign nation on New Africa is based on decolonization, working with other Native communities for liberation, you know, uh, and, and you can't liberate. Uh, you can't decolonize one section of the world. You have to do a global. Because colonization was a global phenomenon. If you listen to people like Gerald Horn or Carl Zah, right? If you mix those two together, <laughs> I know Carl hasn't written too many books, but if you listen to Carl and you and you and you put Gerald uh, Horn's work together, you see that that you know colonization has happened simultaneously globally, you know, in, in Asia, and, you know, if you have the, the first Carl Zah episode 17 with on my podcast, you see that colonization in China is tied to colonization of the U.S., right? So we cannot decolonize just in a small place. It has to be global, right? And I think um, having a Black nation, New Africa, a sovereign nation, the, the, the conversation about Black sovereignty it's important in decolonization. It's very undervalued or not spoken that much on the native communities here in the US, you know, because I feel like there might be a threat that somebody else is building a nation on our continent. And that's a little scary for some native people, I'll, I'll be honest with you, because it's, you know, like, but I think to have for decolonization to work, we need to have this. You know, the black community speaking to um, the native community and exchanging ideas. So, you know, the black community has to understand our sovereignty and the native community has to understand black history and the concept of black sovereignty, right, to move forward. So, like, that's how we're going to move to decolonization. When it, in my point of view, you know, when it comes to black liberation and you know, indigenous sovereignty and indigenous liberation. It's not just indigenous sovereignty, it's also black sovereignty. So so a lot of people, you know, had so I know one person stole my fucking slogan and it's posting all over fucking social media, indigenous sovereignty, black liberation, you know, but then like I their their fucking vision of decolonization is fucking limited. Now they're they're gonna probably listen to this podcast and say, oh, black sovereignty too, you know, when they've never said it. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it is, you know, like that's how the internet works. People work for clout. But you know, um, but you know, I think I think when it comes to decolonization, a lot of people have it out there. They're just treating it as like um uh, this is a different topic, but they're treating it as like a, a like a trend. They're not they're not really really like focused on theory, they're not really focused on nation building, they're not really focused on you know, creating these things, these ideas, they're just out there talking to get fucking likes and followers and fucking fans and shit. 
you know, they're not like, like, like you said earlier, like our little group, we have a little group, you know, we're not in, in an organization, we're just loose, loose people that are getting together, we have conversations about these topics. But man, th this, this, this tiny group, I'm telling you right now, it's the best group when it comes to theory, I think, you know, I'm not gonna name names who's in that group, but um, and I think uh, that's what's lacking. I think we were several groups though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you and I were in several groups, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those things that I think people, you know, we we are we have I just want to say that, you know, black sovereignty, something that you and I have talked about in the past, to me it's very fucking important. Right. So this is why we brainstorm you and I. So yeah. Do you have any comments or no? Oh no! Yeah, uh, yeah, no, no. I, yeah, we can move on if you want. Get, yeah, I had a couple more questions, but yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I, I will say I'm I'm very uh, happy and proud of our group of, um, uh, it's like our theory groups, right? Like, yeah, we're just we're doing theory and we're we're applying theory. Uh, yeah, um, I do think uh, there's a general lack of ability. Uh, a lot of times ability to apply theory among you know our comrades yeah i think a lot of them are really well read and and like they're like almost, a lot of them are a lot of them are there or getting there um i think there's like i think it's trending in a good direction uh, i i think uh people are starting to uh understand how uh important decolonization is to socialism as a global movement like let's we'll, we'll be real like if anyone's been slept you know like any one group of people have have been you know not able to keep up with everyone else in terms of getting this whole global socialism thing going it's you know, the europeans and the settlers like it's like we got to be real yeah. like all of the all, all of the marxist movements are anti-decolonial it's all people who had to kick europeans out of their country uh it's pretty much in just pretty much every case like you know even even in the case of russia where russia's you know uh eurasian um a lot of their revolution was fighting western european powers uh and, and settler but i'm pretty sure the u.s is involved there uh you know in some capacity in like the the whole early parts of the russian revolution so yeah yeah it's uh i think there's a court there's I, I love our core group of people who understand understand the the core importance of decolonization and i'm i'm optimistic i think i think it's trending to where people more people are understanding this yeah i'm seeing people that like i would say like 10 years ago or even like four years when i started this podcast five four five years ago that like fuck rick now saying the same shit i am so like things are moving into into my direction whether people like it or not i've been very consistent on this shit <laughs> for the last 15 years especially when it comes to sovereignty a lot of people like 15 years ago 
you know, on social media, nobody was talking about indigenous sovereignty. I was like, sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. Like, you know, it's essential. Like, MMIW is a sovereignty issue. We got to be able to have jurisdiction, you know what I'm saying, our, uh, assert our sovereignty in order to prosecute people like murdering and kidnapping our women, right? And when it comes to environmental, we have to assert our sovereignty, you know what I'm saying? Our decolonization, our sovereignty is the fucking foundation to decolonization and not like i said before like a couple of minutes ago it's not just indigenous sovereignty it's black sovereignty right which is the core fucking building block of decolonization and if you don't have that it's almost it's almost it's almost impossible in decolonization so my next question for you let's brainstorm how important you and the reason i'm asking this because like i think yesterday or the day before you said you made a comment when we were like messaging each other on on instagram it was like you said like something like people don't understand oh you start you want to make a comment you've been a comment like you want to emphasize how history is almost more more important than you know understanding so you understand theory so how important is history to understand uh, theory and how important, just two two part questions. So, how important is is history for theory, and how important is it for people to be Marxist or understand dialectical materialism to for decolonization? I feel like people say decolonize without being Marxist. You know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would even now like even amend that that tweet I did and like I like I like now I want it right now I want to say that they're equally important like and that you can't have one without like you can't get anything done without I, one or the other like one or the other like you just get you know like decolonization without Marxism is just some liberal uh movement and and all the things that Fanon and uh and all the other uh, African liberation movement people would write about and what they had, why socialism was so important in decolonization, because otherwise you just get uh, national liberals, like, you know, your, your own countrymen, but they're liberals and uh, they'll sell your, they're, they're, they just end up being, the liberals end up being compradors and they just sell your country out to mm-hmm. Europe, Europe and the, the global hegemony uh, in the U S uh, so, like, I, I would say they're they're now that they're equally important because yeah. But I but my point kind of with that was just that like the deficiency I see is people's inability to understand uh, the national and colonial question, which is like which is here. That's why you get these patriot, you know patriotic socialists, and we've you, you know we have mm. we say patriotic socialists. And it's like used as a specific term for, like, we use it for specific people who have, who are like basically super patriots. Like, I'd say, like, you know, uh, um, uh, Parenti's idea of super patriotism. Like, the, these are kind of like, we, we kind of use it exclusively for super patriots when a lot of people who perhaps wouldn't call themselves Pat Sox essentially espouse the same ideas like yeah. they're essentially like they they still like advocate for like some sort of two-state solution where oh what if there was like a settler so uh, a socialist settler state that operated alongside native 
people and they get to have some of the land over there and you know it's like they still they 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 don't understand that they are pets up pet socks i guess or if they do they they think like oh no that's fine that's uh that's my answer that that they that's their answer to the national question is that like there there still should be a settler nation uh here in some capacity it should just be socialist um and that they're forming some sort of vanguard party that that is not an indigenous nation who as as you you really uh clarified that for me uh that like when you said it when you used that verbiage that really like that hit for me that that made uh a lot of stuff came together for me like that in terms of how to describe it uh like the the indigenous nations are the vanguard like and that's the case for all the anti-colonial socialist movements like the korea like kim il-sung's dprk was the that was the vanguard party and they were the indigenous people of korea and they kicked out the french like that's uh just just to name one example like ho chi minh in vietnam and uh every you know across africa and then the latin american movements like these are all uh the indigenous they're all pretty much uh except for a few exceptions latin america of course is very complicated mm -hmm. i feel like that's a whole thing that i don't feel like i, I i'm comfortable commenting on actually even but uh in, in terms of the indigenous the, the the colonial question in south america is very complicated especially from from country to country as well uh it's different so but um but yeah it's generally um uh Sorry, what what was the second part to the question? Uh, how important is history? But I uh, think yeah, that yeah, kind of goes with like why Pat socks are, are Pat socks, <laughs> right? It's because yeah. they don't understand history, thus leading them not understanding the colonial question, right? Yep. So then they're just fucking complete idiots. They sound like idiots. They're not idiots. They just don't know. Some of them are yeah. not idiots. Some of them are purposely idiots like Haas and Hinkle yeah. and Maupin. They they purposely don't want to listen. We have some people like that, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we oh yeah, I was just gonna say we we could be real and some of them are just uh you know racist, honestly. Racist and yeah. Euro European social uh chauvinist, uh, settler so chauvinist. Um we can just say that outright. But yeah, a lot of people are just misinformed and like it unable to apply theory to this continent honestly just like uh, un unable to apply um yeah due to the lack of understanding of history oh yeah sorry to, to just to cap off on the um on the last point like so like i i would say that history is more like is as important as theory like we need uh to understand marxist theory to understand why liberalism just doesn't work for everyone uh mm -hmm. and we but and that we need to purge liberalism and and you know do socialist nation nation building in our national liberation projects mm -hmm. uh but but we also generally everyone needs to understand uh the history history because uh, and that's the deficiency that's what i was gonna cap it off with like 
it's not that it's more history is more important. It's just that I see, I, I feel like people are doing a good job of understanding Marxist theory. Like we have a lot of Marxist theory understanders out here, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but a lot of them just don't understand history or, or yeah, as, as you always comment, uh, decolonial theory. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so, that, and then, so his history, I guess that, that that leads into yeah history being so important uh you i feel like you can't read a gerald horn book and and not understand how important history is because it's yeah it's glaring like when you really read it it, it's just glaring how the the contradictions are glaring and and it and it makes you uh and and it's jarring because like us being in this atmosphere of of settler colonialism where that stuff sounds like it it doesn't even make sense to people when you say like the united states shouldn't exist it's an illegitimate state that was built on top of existing nations who still exist and deserve their sovereignty back and that sounds like you're speaking you know an alien language to a lot of people or it just it doesn't even click or like make sense a lot of it is the ingrained white supremacy that's inherent in the system like like you can address that that just settler colonialism just has and the ideology ideology ideological base for it is rooted in white supremacy and that's mm-hmm. it's just for anyone who does any sort of reading into this, uh, it should just be very apparent and easy to understand how racist everything, everything from the disproportionate, like everything, everything from land theft to pollution and environmental environmental degra- uh, degradation and um, uh, and the oppression of indigenous people and yeah that. It, it should all be very apparent, but it isn't to a lot of people because of ideological conditioning um, by the status quo, by, by the media and the establishment academia. Uh, yeah, these all that where all of these things are enforced. But yeah, that's why history is important. And I would say even uh, to get specific, historiography is really important, and the and the current paradigm, um, and the, also the you know for decades, people indigenous writers have been writing about this. Uh, as you're always pointing out, I'll mention your share drive, which is awesome. Like your share drive is the goat, in my opinion, and uh, everyone should just really dig into that stuff. Dig into indigenous authors and start thinking of things from not a euro colonial uh s- s- central uh c- centric view viewpoint which is the yeah the average telling of history and understanding of history um the historiography is really important like gerald horn and the whole rewriting of history to to yeah, not be Eurocentric. Uh, yeah, that's it's very important. Oh damn! I thought I was muted. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I yeah, one hundred percent. And I think it's hard. It's hard because like I, I have stories I don't want to 
people that listen to podcasts, I don't want to repeat the same shit, right? Uh, but I have, I, you know, in these episodes, I have stories about, especially in the podcast, the Pat Talk episodes, my experiences with, uh, like, 20 years ago with, with uh, Pat Socks, uh in person, organizing in person, right? And when this came online, I was just like, dude, are we still dealing with this shit? Of course we are, right? Uh, and it's a new generation of, like, younger, quote-unquote, political people that, you know are coming new into the scene with the internet and they they don't know history because they, they all they know is fucking you know whatever the fuck weird sc- stories about squanto or fucking Pocahontas they learn from school and the fish inside the fucking under the corn plant or some shit i don't know what the fuck i learned in like fucking kindergarten <laughs> you know from like uh you know the u.s education system is really bad with um with um, you know, even with U.S. history, I remember this is a little side story. When we got into the Korean War in high school, it was literally read one page. The Korean War was from, from like 1950 to 1955, and that was it. I was just like, "What? But why?" <laughs> with the war with people, about why the teacher totally skipped it. Was you know that was about communism or or whatever. Yeah, it's just like we won the Korean War. That's it. They, they do a lot of brushing over the crimes of the United States. Yeah, in their telling of history, it's a yeah, it's a very it's a pseudo history. Like I think we should call it what it is. Like what people are taught here is a pseudo history, and that that's why they have such a hard time understanding mm-hmm. um, things from not a Eurocentric point of view. Is like. If you actually know the real history, it's horrifying, and you shouldn't identify with it. And yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of pseudo history, a lot of uh, a, a lot of manipulated, uh, very doctored. I, I think you could you would say doctored history. Hey, I'm gonna pause real quick. Okay, real quick. We're back. It was that fast. Okay, so. <laughs> so we're, you know to move forward i do want people to know kind of who you are you know people was like oh he's super political he he's so knowledgeable but there's like more in depth obviously to everybody but to you like uh who you are and this we have really good conversations um before we get it there's two things we're going to talk about one is cannabis growing because we both used to grow cannabis and two is boarding i actually wanted to get into boarding first i feel the cannabis conversation will be longer Right. So boarding and before we, we, we spoke about um, before we, we recorded, uh, we were talking about how I used to be. I, I, I see I'm going to go back even further. So I, used, I see your Instagram story and you see like surfers and skateboarders. And, you know, I grew up like in California and there was like in the 90s, there's like skate shops and you used to have a couch in there. People used to hang out, you know, at the skate shop and like, you know, just kick it, you know what I'm saying? And buy a skateboard or bring your skateboard and you just hang out, you know, your friends. And I used to also, um, when I was living in San Diego, I used to go, even though, you know, we talked about earlier, uh, I I, did, I saw it like it's like a kid version of surfing. So I used to body surf. And there, you know, as I was talking earlier, there's something about catching like the perfect wave and just riding it right all the way to like you know the shore, and it's just the, the best feeling. Some some days, you know, in San Diego, the the waves are not that great, right? It's small waves, but but you know that was, they're, they're still good for body surfing. But I think 
when I went to Hawaii and they have serious waves, I was like, I am going to die here. <laughs> like it was no bullshit. Like I, I spent 30 minutes trying to get out of the water. Like I really I was so exhausted. I was like, I've never body surfing in Hawaii ever again. I haven't since then. <laughs> I really thought I was going to die, right? And uh, and we also have snowboarding stuff. And I went snowboarding. My last story, I promise. I went to. I don't know if you heard of the uh, indoors skiing in Dubai. They have this, this in the mall. They have an indoor skiing resort, whatever. And I went in there. And then they were like, you know, when they can, you know, check in, they're like, have you, have you skiboarded, you know, or snowboarded or skied before? And I said, yes, because if you don't, you haven't, you have to take their lessons before you use the, the fucking, you know, the slope there. I haven't, I didn't, I was like, that's yeah, going to be easy. It's going to be skateboarding or like whatever the fuck. I went there and then we went to the top, right? And, and I looked down, I was like, oh, cool, whatever. So what people don't know is like in the snow, I don't know, you know, you know, like you go from like zero to like fast as shit really quick. <laughs> right. So I was going fast as shit. I was like, oh yeah, this is cool. I was like going down the fucking slope in Dubai. And then what well, you know, at the bottom of the slope, there's like this really small like stopping area. And after that, it's the glass and <laughs> the glass into the mall. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, I have to like. Stop. I don't know how to stop. I've never done this before. <laughs> so I was like, okay, what I'm going to do is like just fall purposely and I'm going to stop. That shit was painful as fuck, right? Like my legs went that way because my board went that way and I was like that. And then some fucking dude with a fucking red sweater on with a fucking white cross was like, you okay? And, and he, I was like, yeah. And he was like, get the fuck off the goddamn slope. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I took that shit up. I was like, I'm done. I'm never doing this shit again. <laughs> so tell me about boarding, you know. You have any stories or oh sure, yeah. Some boards, uh, you know, some people call it board sports. Um a lot of people don't like to call it sport, but like, I don't know, it's fine. I, I just call it board sports. Um but yeah, just in general, like I, I do like the um like homies of mine like just call it surfing and just like call it like just different kinds of surfing because at the end of the day it is like all these things are just derived from surfing like they're surfing and then like people are like oh we're gonna surf on land like we're gonna surf on pavement so they made uh the first skateboards and then uh then there's people who want to surf on snow and they made snowboards and um yeah like uh so it's all just different kinds of surfing but for for me, but yeah, uh, uh, boarding is kind of my like. I I have a, I'd say a bunch of passions, but like that's kind of like my main uh, in terms of like physical activities. Like that's what I want to do all the time. I just always want to surf, um, whether it's surfing on. But my favorite is surfing in the ocean. Like. Uh, like original surfing uh the ocean is very uh, very special to me i've just always been a um a water bound person uh like i love swimming and and paddle boarding and uh canoeing too and um something about kayaking kind of hurts my back but uh yeah i love um i love just all just being on the water I, i'm definitely a, a salty barnacle like water water person and uh 
And yeah, so surfing's like my favorite. So, like you said, the feeling of catching a wave for those who haven't tried it. Um, you once you do it, you'll be like, this is the best thing ever. And if you stick with it and eventually get on a wave and turn, turn onto a wave, uh, it'll, it'll bite the bug will bite you and you'll fall in love and you'll yeah. realize that there's no, there's no <sighs> other feeling in the world. Like, um, being on a wave and being able to reach out and touch it. And, um, yeah, waves are, are super cool and they're just like, Surfing to me, it's the most fun thing ever, and I, it, it, I, uh, I love it. So it's what I would spend most of my time doing if I could. Um, I, when I live by the ocean, uh, I'm just trying to go out all the time, uh, and yeah. But I also like I also surfing. Actually, didn't get really into surfing until like my early 20s um before that i was i snowboarding was the first board sport i did even though like i'd say now i could still count on my hands and toes how many times i've been snowboarding like i think i've maybe been snowboarding 20 times but like luckily a lot of the other board sports that i do translate like pretty well so i like do pretty well for not being the most experienced snowboarder like I can huck airs and stuff and <laughs> like pretty easily and, uh, and do three sixties and, um, like carve, like I get, carving is really easy. Honestly, carving on snowboards is like in, in general, riding snowboards, it's kind of the easiest board sport, even though like you can take it further and you can do like insane shit. Like you get into acrobatic shit, like doing double corks and you know, whatever. Travis Rice and all the other crazy uh, Zeb Powell and all the other cool, stylish, uh, top-level riders do. Um, that, of course, has a huge learning curve. But, like, uh, yeah, in general, like, snowboarding is kind of, for to me, it's, like, the easiest. You're, like, on the ground. So there's not, like, on a skateboard, you're, like, lifted a few inches off the ground. So there's, like, extra balancing you have to do. Mm -hmm um with a snowboard you're at least like pretty much smack dab like on the ground um if you're in good conditions uh it's there's actually a huge difference in like snowboards are really hard to ride on like i actually just hurt myself last mm -hmm. weekend uh, i hurt my knee like pretty bad i i basically inside if anyone's a jujitsu person like i basically inside heel hooked myself getting off an icy get, getting off a really steep lift that like i, th I think had like a little ice on it like uh, I just, uh, uh, East coast mountains are kind of notoriously cause we don't have like crazy elevation over here, like the West yeah. coast. Um, I did some riding at Timberline and I actually started the first riding I did was in Washington. Uh, when I was a kid, um, in Snoqualmie, I went up a couple times when, uh, I was a kid, we lived in, in, uh, Redmond, Washington outside of Seattle. Uh, and the west coast just has the elevation like the tallest mountain here is mount washington on the, in the east on the east coast and it's like six thousand feet and change i think and then you know on the west coast that's like below the 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 peak of that 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 mountain of mount washington is like mm -hmm. not even as high elevation as the lifts uh in 
on the west coast like the west coast you know you got like a basin is like you know and all the colorado mountains they're all up there like ten thousand feet and you know go down from there and like i was at timberline uh when i lived in oregon that's like kind of where i'd say i've done the most progression so far uh in my riding and the conditions there are great uh mm -hmm. riding a snowboard in good conditions is just like you'll find yourself progressing really fast because in my opinion if you're a board sports person like in my opinion because it's really easy so it's <laughs> for, for me snowboarding's very much uh like where you go kind of thing like uh, it, it's very important where you go a lot of these things are important where you go and most of them are like if you just move to the west coast <laughs> you have it's all the best riding in every in every regard like surfing um surfing snowboarding it's just got everything on the west coast i've spent a lot of my life here where it's a uh, you know we call it beast coast it's just like you kind of just become a gnarly rider because like all of our all of our slopes are icy usually because there's such low elevation it'll get above freezing and melt and then refreeze so you get a bunch of ice mm -hmm. um uh yeah i always get i always get beat up on these <laughs> east coast slopes because the conditions are never that great uh but yeah and our mountains are small i'm a big uh hill skater i love skating hills like for those who, that don't know like you know free... like skateboarding yeah yeah de like downhill yeah. skateboarding like I, I haven't done a lot personally i haven't done a ton of like legit downhill my friends are uh really nasty downhillers uh like they'll they did races going 70 miles an hour on their longboards you know all suited up like pre-drifting pre doing sick sick stuff um i've done a couple of dinky races uh I, I can like the fastest i've gone is like maybe 50 55 miles an hour but it's like fun i love that's a um that was kind of my big that's like the board sport i've done the most is skating hills and doing like drifts and uh yeah that kind of skating um that's like kind of my biggest sport sport and i picked up snow uh picked up surfing later and got better at snowboarding later and uh and really just the past few years um have been able to like you know my ollies still aren't that good like me skating a little double kick uh like i can drop in on bowls and and scrape a little 50 but uh but that's about it and it's still super fun board sports to me uh yeah it's just the most fun the most fun activity i've uh, i've done all the the team sports when i was a kid uh and they're fun but yeah for me i've just always been like a board sport and i guess you could say other adventure sports too like, like rock climbing and stuff like that yeah i mean in the west coast there's a lot of um Especially when I grew in California, where I grew up, it's a lot, there's a lot of like skateboarders. I always always move away and come back to California, and I noticed this one thing that I, I, I people don't I don't think they they really notice or maybe they don't appreciate that like it's you know compared to Texas or compared to any other parts of this country that when you go to Southern California. And, you know, I'm driving around, you know, like say Anaheim or like, you know, Los Angeles, you're always going to see like motherfuckers on skateboards, right? Like everywhere. <laughs> you see like a cholo on a skateboard. You see a goth person on a skateboard. You see like some punk rock dudes, like all whatever aesthetics. They're all riding skateboards. You know, it's like the thing to do. So when growing up, yeah, it was just like, uh, I'm so old. 
I wrote Scapers when they had one the one little side up instead of two. <laughs> the old school skateboards. Uh, I had that for my first skateboard as a kid. It was like a Ninja Turtle one, you know? <laughs> yeah, we call it, that's a single kick. Yeah. Uh, it's got one kick tail. Yeah, but. Nice, it's directional shape. I love those. I actually am a big old school. Sk- I love old school style shapes. Big, big chunky boards that mm-hmm. are just like goofy and like i don't know i love it i love the old school stuff i love i love fun all different sorts of fun shapes there's a lot of cool shit that is like it's evolving because when i was at uc san diego a lot of the uh you know the you know younger generations so you know the new freshmen they had these skateboards but they're like remote control for us to stand on it and they go to class and they just i guess like the skateboard's moving by yeah, itself yeah keyboards yeah yeah that's fucking cool shit a friend of mine helped develop the loaded ones. I don't know, I'm sure you've seen loaded board, loaded longboards around. Uh, um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, my, a friend of mine helped develop the e-board. That uh, the, they're they're crazy. Those things are crazy. They go like 40 miles an hour. Holy shit! <laughs> I've seen with, people with eat some, shit on them though. Yeah, it's it's fucking wild. I'm like, you know, walking around campus and you see some some fucking kid just eating shit. I'm like, damn, dude, what the fuck? Like, you gotta like. You, you know, you got to be careful, man. And I learned my lessons in like all three of them. You know, I, I took my story about snowboarding and, and surfing. I, I respect the water 100% because um, especially when I went to Hawaii, I was like, God damn, like I, that's why I realized like I'm really no good at this, but I still love it, you know? So um, I guess I do have a question for you about boarding. It's how important, because I saw your story about don't fuck around the water. How important is to respect the water? You know, cause you can kill you. Yeah. Yep. So I, I've, I've been on the water my whole life. Like, uh, I actually didn't, I took some swim lessons when I was young, but I was like never a strong swimmer until I, uh, moved back to Massachusetts when I was 14. And I started just, uh, like that's what my friends would do. I lived right by the ocean and right on a river so we just we were on the water all the time and that's really where i developed my understanding of water and like waterways and um and the ocean and how it works and what to look out for and what all the different phenomena are of the ocean um and water bodies of water in general um so like yeah there's i think there's like a like with a lot of things, like a lot of people who maybe haven't experienced something, like uh, they're naive to it. Uh, the ocean is one of those things, like the ocean, you know, it's the destiny. A lot of people don't live near the ocean and they're always like, oh, I'd love to see the ocean someday. And and like it's something that not everyone gets to experience, and especially with uh, uh, c- colonial capitalist racist division of land. And, you know, that will be real, like where like all the beach towns are like primarily white rich people so um like there's that lack of access for racialized people generally to the ocean um so yeah i'd say like generally j- just like with anything having to do with nature if you're not someone who's in nature all the time and very uh naive to its workings uh you know i i highly recommend being just very careful with anything you do that that includes like you know uh hikes in the woods even um in in territories that you don't i was thinking that shit Um, too i was thinking as you um, were saying 
all this. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, it's like that's a general like um, wherewithal thing. Yeah, like that's a I, I've pulled a, a, a and someone who had had lost their life to the ocean. I, I've pulled someone out of the water, and yeah, it's not a good time, and it's sad, and um, and it's uh, preventable. And, and if people he was a guy like uh we found out that he's he's a guy from milton he liked to come down sometimes and swim uh like that we're this is uh, uh i was i'm from south of boston i did a lot of my growing up south of boston that's where i learned the, the ocean is uh called the south shore um north of cape cod and uh, this guy came down from like he was like you know lived in an urban area and he swam sometimes. He probably thought he was a really good swimmer. Uh, he, he you know he was probably a little overconfident, uh, and I say that as someone who has been overconfident in plenty of situations and am very thankful to still have my life. Um, and but yeah, uh, he there's a strong rip current that day, and it's it's funny sometimes water will look unassuming it'll look like it's pretty yeah. chill out there um but like there are things especially to do it, it's a it's the case in rivers as well uh but they're yeah they're undertoes like for those that mm -hmm. don't know what's happening on the surface of the water isn't necessarily what's happening a couple feet down and uh there's some really strong undertoes in certain places depending on the topography of the ocean or the river but uh, there's some strong undertow currents that can literally drag you to the bottom uh, and hold you there. And you don't know when you're going to end up in the right part of the stream that'll bring you back up to the surface. That's why you're saying that, because one of my first memories of the ocean is me being sucked in one of those like undertows, right? As a kid, like I was like, I would say uh, six years old, six, seven years old. And I remember like, standing there and you know when the water is going like this wave comes in the water comes back into it's going back to the ocean and i was a kid and then it sucked me under that that whatever and it pulled me and i remember twisting like i was like going in circles under and trying to grab the the the, the dirt you know the the land and i finally did and i finally made it back to shore and i was just like i almost died <laughs> it's scary shit man but yeah. uh, but I think yeah, I think I'm talking about hiking too because um I mean when I was in, when I was in the military, when I, especially in the army, um, you know, hiking or rucking is a big thing. So I used to hike a lot and there was a point on a trail, there's something called the Wonderland Trail on Mount Rainier, which is the most beautiful trail I've ever been on, right? It's 93 miles around the, the mountain, right? And I was like, I'm one of those, like, I'm going to do this shit, right? Um, when I see a trail that's really, you know, really long. Um, but like the 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 top half of the mountain, there is like nothing. There's no roads. There's no stops. It's just trail, right? And I made it. I, I remember the, the first day I went 15 miles out. And I crossed some bridges, some really sketchy bridges. And I was even thinking back, I'm like, what the fuck did I do that? But there was um, a point where the top, the, the highest point of the mountain, and I tried to, to go through the trail. And I was like, I cannot do this. Like, uh, and I looked down, there was like a half mile drop down. And I was like, if, I've, if this snow 
but you know buckles under my feet and i fall for like half a mile i'm gonna fucking die and i remember hearing my wife's voice saying don't do it don't risk your life so i went down and i was staring at it this part of the trail i you know opened my 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 lunch that i brought and i watched other people do it but they had equipment i didn't and i was like i i was like i need the equipment right i can't just do it freehand i can't and somebody offered like why are you sitting here i was like i'm watching people do it i don't have equipment they're like oh you can use mine i was like still now because what if i need it in the other 30 miles you know 40 miles am i needed again right and i was just like no i just walk back 15 i think that's the most i i hiked in one day was like 30 miles 15 miles one way and then 15 miles back it was a fucking exhausting day right um but yeah if, if you don't have to risk it don't do it you know, I always say like, um, the water's scary for me. And, and if you're listening, it is, I don't see anything bad. If you want, wear, want to wear with those life jackets, I went snorkeling one time and, you know, they're like, oh, my, me and my friends were like, you know, they were like, Hey, I don't need a life jacket. It's corny, whatever. I was like, you know what? I get exhausted pretty quick. So I'm going to wear a life jacket thing. And I did, I went snorkeling with the life jacket thing and it was easy. You know, I, I feel better, you know, I feel good that I did it. You know, I actually focused my time on taking pictures rather than focusing on swimming or staying afloat. I mean, like, don't feel embarrassed that you're going to wear a life preserver, whatever it's called life jacket, you know, but that's just my opinion. So. Yeah, definitely. A lot of it comes from embarrassment. I've, uh, there's a, I, I know people who have gotten themselves in sticky situations who weren't really honestly very strong swimmers and yeah you gotta you gotta um you gotta take that stuff seriously uh the 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 ocean is powerful uh and rivers can be powerful and, and oh yeah they're, str they're stronger than you uh i'll tell yeah. you that um and they well, like you want to fight them uh they you know you might not win that fight uh yeah in some cases so yeah don't be too proud and and also do things as safely as possible with a guide ideally with someone to guide you um who knows what they're doing yeah i think it's more about enjoying yourself because like i even skateboarding like i i know i'm not the best skateboarder you know and i don't do stupid shit and i wear a helmet man i'm not stupid and sometimes yeah, I, helmet, I, I pad up yeah, just pad up. Yeah, exactly. I wear those little handbands, the little ones with the little thing. I'm really like, you know, like when I was a kid, my mom bought me those. I had to wear those, the knee pads, the elbow pads, the little hand ones. And for me, the best ones were always the hand ones, right? Because I was always falling, catching myself and shit. So don't don't feel bad, you know? Yeah, preserve I, your hands. I, I'm a very, like, I'd say I'm a very proficient rider, and I still like to pad up, uh, wear a helmet. Mm -hmm. um you know sometimes i don't sometimes i'm too confident and i don't and you know i i get away with it because i have a you know level of riding skill but every time i do that i'm still i have the worst wrecks of my life uh are doing yeah. something dumb like like what i just mentioned like getting off a lift i wasn't even like you know i i hurt myself getting off a lift but i was like hucking airs like all day like and i didn't <laughs> hurt myself doing that uh it's always something dumb and it's always something like going two miles an hour doing something dumb or like or just doing like you know even cruising along and you end up in a tree well snowboarding or something you know it's your fucking skateboarding is a fucking rock anytime. and your yeah, fucking yep. skateboard stop but your body keeps moving forward you're like oh yeah, fuck i'm gonna need shit get, you could hit a stop rock <laughs> yep like stop rocks will wreck you and you don't even have to be going that fast um it's usually when you're going slow that you're you don't expect it to so it like, yeah. takes you by surprise 
Um, yeah, so careful out there. Self-preservation is important. Yeah, enough about boarding. People are like, damn, do you guys just talk about boarding? <laughs> no, not about cannabis, because cannabis, uh, you just did an uh, episode recently on, you know, the Isaac's podcast about Caddy, also on um, Bands of Turtle Island podcast, right, about, about um, cannabis, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, no, it's, it was, they're both episodes where Isaac's uh, oh, okay. podcast, yeah, but, oh, okay. but Bands was on the first one, yeah. Okay. Um, so how, you know, obviously I, 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 I like cannabis and before we get into growing, you know, I think there was like a, just like the embarrassment factor, kind of like it. it's like the, the peer pressure factor, people like they get into cannabis and they, I feel like they just want to smoke, constantly smoke, smoke, smoke. And some people can't handle that. Right. And we talked about this, like, I'm not a, like an edible person. Cause I take edibles and then I get stupid, right? I, I start thinking dumb shit like, oh, I'm just like a fucking flesh machine on this fucking rock floor in the space. What the fuck am I gonna die one day? What the fuck? And it's just too much for me. It's way too much. I I, I stay stoned for too long, sometimes for like days at a time for eating an edible um, or I see colors and shit. Um, but there's also a process, I think, to get just like getting to like boardings or whatever, skateboarding, you know, you, you know, if you get into cannabis, like you don't have to smoke a big ass blunt the first time, you know, or the strongest fucking weed, you know, to to you know get into that. There's obviously safe ways. Um, and we can you want to talk about that? Yeah, so um a lot of what I'm doing as a breeder and what a lot of stuff I hope to be able to do with some uh, with some opportunities that I p potentially have to do some commercial growing. Uh, um, what I what I'd like to do is to provide um, different varieties. I, I'd also like to help uh, with with the influence and influencing of people and how to. Uh, help people navigate the cannabis um, market, you could say, uh, you know, or even just the cannabis world, the cannabis community, um, and understand like what they can get from it that they want, because there's definitely a lot, there's like the prevailing cannabis culture, which is um, determined mostly by heavy, heavy users, such as myself. Like I am actually like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one to smoke high as you can imagine, a, a weed farmer would uh, high high volume of uh, high potency cannabis, um, and that's okay for me. But that's not okay for everyone. Um, not everyone needs that or wants that at all. Uh, and what a lot of people have trouble, a lot of people seek cannabis for medicine or even recreational uses, and have a hard time finding what they want or need. And uh, I, a lot of what I do is to try and help move that uh move that along in a in a uh to a better trajectory than we're on right now which is main namely uh uh capitalist driven cannabis uh you know this is the settler colonial capitalist system determining what cannabis looks like which is what's profitable which comes down to what's marketable and also what uh you know is feasible like to bring to market so 
uh, and what's scalable to them because that's the operate that's the scale that that that's how capitalists operate. You know, it's not like there's a bunch of cap little capitalist mom and pop uh, <laughs> cannabis grows making just really high quality cannabis products for you. Um, so yeah, a lot of what I do with, the, with my breeding, uh, I've made one. Uh, in general, I'm trying to like to create some hybrids for people and preserve lines also that uh, are things that people don't have access to, but like would benefit from. Like there's a lot of a certain kind of profile of cannabis out there that exists uh, that's easy to find the like the heavy this the stuff made for pe- mainly for people like me uh who who will smoke the strong stuff and want the strongest stuff possible you'll get a bang for your buck for your thc percentage and and uh high potency but uh that's not all i like to smoke by the way also but uh but what a lot of the vast majority of people don't want that uh in my experience a lot of people want something milder something that uh yeah they can function on and so I've been like breeding some some of these varieties into existence. My upcoming coming project, I'm going to throw some CBD females in in there and make some more hybrids. But I just made a hybrid uh, of of a one to one, like I used it, a high THC content variety uh, that I made, and then also I put that on. Uh, I pollinated a pure quote unquote hemp CBD uh, variety. Um, to make a, a a nice mild hybrid and we'll see how that comes out i'm gonna gonna work with that um and yeah bring a lot of that to the market um also help people understand what kind of products they need uh we've mm. talked about how uh how edibles there's a huge misconception about edibles being generally what people are looking for like especially what it being like less intimidating than smoking or vaporizing uh it's you know it's the the ease of use is is just eating a gummy right uh, as you would just eat a piece of candy but uh there's there's some issues with just how uh you know the the capitalist ways of cutting corners in industries like makes for a certain kind of product uh one one attribute that they have characteristic is that the the doses are uneven quite often so like that's why you'll you'll have a big chocolate bar and the chocolate bar is 100 milligrams but you break it in half and one half has 400 milligrams and the other half has a, a, a 100 milligrams like it's not even distributed ton, dude yeah yeah yep like it, it won't be because it's kind of it like uh it's something that a lot of people a lot of these companies i guess like don't see the t- the the worth in investing in uh like making products that are dosable like that like there's things you can do like uh ultra ultrasonic emulsification which is used in pharmaceuticals to make mm-hmm. things that cannabis is not water soluble it, it, that's like kind of the big problem with the edibles and the dosing it's like cannabis oil is not water soluble so like when you try to just dilute it in water it like will unevenly distribute itself because it's not um, emulsified and it's not an emulsification or, or it's not a it, it's not homogenous it's not uh, all one you like ubiquitous uh concentration 
it, it's different. It's a higher concentration in one point than another because it didn't mix with the water in whatever you're making. Um, so, uh, or even in the oils that you're making, uh, mm -hmm. but, but like, so, but you can do things like ultrasonic emulsification, which like breaks the particles down small enough to where you can make, uh, make it water soluble and you add a surfactant. If you don't notice a surfactant is something that breaks up. It's what's in soap, uh, like mm -hmm. that that blends water with oils with the cleaning oils in soap because you know how soap is like just water and oil and then they use a surfactant to mix it uh to make it a hom homogeneous mixture yeah um, so so there are things like that that like you'll just have to do your your research about companies and where you get products from to see if like uh they do stuff like that and probably a lot of that information is hard to find and i'll say that just like those products those high quality products generally don't exist and what's mostly available to people in dispensaries and you know maybe on the internet if you're getting a cbd product most of these things are going to be like very low grade products unfortunately mm. um even though some people you know they they really need something and that's all they have access to and you know if that's the case then maybe that's you know what you got to go with because that's just the only option at your disposal but yeah um if you, you can find a, question. a grower oh, yeah, i was gonna ahead. ask you that that's the question i was gonna ask you so do you feel like people should should learn how to grow like let's say one or two plants by themselves do you think do you uh, recommend that yeah, if you want, I would say like really getting into it is kind of a huge endeavor and like there's kind of a scale where it's worth it and a scale that's not unless you really unless the medicine makes a massive difference in your quality of life and you just mm -hmm. need to have some good clean medicine. And if it's worth it to you like yeah totally it's always best to grow your mm -hmm. own like you because you know your grower because it's you. Uh, yeah, and then, you, and then as far as how clean and and well you want to grow it like that's up to how much you know mm -hmm. you can invest and how much you can put into it yourself but um but yeah uh knowing your grower is the best and knowing that they do things well and clean and like i personally i don't use pesticides i grow with regenerative inputs uh and i don't yeah i don't spray anything on my flowers and even and when i extract it i don't use um, although, you know, I don't really have anything against a lot of extraction, a lot of solvent extractions, but I personally mm -hmm. am a pure solventless. I don't, I don't like, what do you mean by any, solventless? Uh, solventless is nothing like, so the specific product that I make is hash rosin, where you, mm -hmm. you wash what, uh, is called bubble hash, where you use mm -hmm. water. Uh, certain micron screens and water and ice to to uh, you make a slurry of of cannabis like usually just your trim that's what people will do with their trim just to get all the trichomes get all the good stuff off your trim like it's not a nice flower that you want to sell or smoke but mm -hmm. it, uh, but it's still got trichomes on there it's like all the small buds um, that's what I use and that uh you can you can just make a slurry of ice water and that like people you, I, I i've always used countertop washers some people hand mix um 
like for even better quality. But uh, yeah, I've always had good results with countertop washers and then you strain that slurry through different micron screens and depending mm -hmm. on the size of the trichome heads you'll have different grades of hash that will have like different purity levels of um of trichome heads and like if you what you want uh there's also other extra solventless methods you can do there's called dry sifting uh, i haven't done that so i don't know personally a lot about it but uh similar concept you're just screening these trichome heads to get nothing mm -hmm. but uh, if you were to put it under a microscope it would be uh like caviar it would look like caviar if you guys know what trichome heads are like that's the yeah. red it's the resin gland on the plant that's like that's got all the good stuff all the good TSC. yep yeah, yeah it's got all it's got all the um all the cannabinoids and the terpenes in there uh, that's yeah the resin gland at the plant that's that's what you want so you so i'm separating that from the plant matter to to for it to just be the, the, those little resin glands and it looks like caviar under a microscope um if it's if it's pure and it's just trichome heads yeah. um so i'll take that and i'll even squish that out to with heat and pressure to make an even more pure product that has even less like plant matter in it even mm. less uh of the like plant cellulose and uh carbon material um the the things that encase the the resin gland mm -hmm. uh, but yeah so that's that's a little rundown on the products that are available commercially and what you can get if you like go craft with a small grow you know small mm -hmm. local grower like you know uh that you can support um but but yeah like that's it with as with a lot of things under capital capitalism like you're gonna have to hunt for the good stuff unfortunately or yeah make it, or make it yourself that's why i grew myself so you know as i go back a little bit so cannabis became semi-legal in california and i remember getting my first medical card and sitting down with like these like shoddy doctors that don't even they don't even give a fuck if you're really sick or not they just want to sell you a medical card in california this is back in the day and um I remember he was like, you know, he actually sat down. He was like, you know, if you're a smoker, if you want to smoke cannabis, I recommend a vaporizer. You know, those, those block vaporizers with the fucking rubber tube, whatever, the old school ones. Yeah, it's I'm got like, a whip. Yeah, call yeah. it a whip. So, yeah, but actually, you know, he said that, you know, because it, you can put it high enough where it, it, it burns the trichomes, but doesn't burn the plants. So you're not burning your lungs. So I was just like, oh, yeah. So. That I used a vaporizer, and, and you know, like that's that that type of vaporizer, not the other type with the fucking wax, whatever in it. So I I was using that for a while, um, and that was like you know a, a, it was really metal for me. But then, like I I would say in the early two thousands with the moon rocks or whatever the fuck start coming out and wax and moon rocks and and then the pens and then the pens were outlawed and then fucking bootleg pens and i was like i'm not smoking this shit because the pens used to like get me extremely stoned for like 10 minutes and then it just went away right <laughs> it's just like i don't like this shit <laughs> you know i don't want to be hitting it every like 15 minutes so i was then i got into growing um and it was weird because uh, I had like a uh, two story. Uh, when I was in the army, I had one of my sergeants 
uh, was growing cannabis out of his garage. <laughs> you, you know, people that were in the military know that you can't smoke cannabis and be in the military, but he wasn't smoking, he was just growing it. So I was like, teach me. <laughs> so then I started growing, but then like growing itself is an art, right? Because you can, the first plant I had, I chemically burned it. Right. And what, you know, chemicals, I used to uh, use the old school general hydroponics, like flora grow, flora bloom and all that stuff. And even that, like I had a dude at the hydro shop teach me, I had to buy a bucket that was chemical resistant because if you buy a regular bucket and use chemicals, uh, if you put chemicals, I don't know if it's true or not. He told me if I put the chemicals in the wrong order, they can't, they neutralize themselves. So I had to put chemicals in a certain order, right? And to mix them for certain levels of growing, you know? So I was, you know, I had my little notes and everything and I was reading books and I was watching videos uh, and, you know, like I had the bucket so I wouldn't get the chemicals won't, won't absorb in a, you know, in the paint with those paint buckets, you know, for so I bought a chemical resistant one and I was doing my chemicals in there every night and growing in a small tent with LED lights. LEDs would take less electricity than the halogen, the halogen ones, right? And because my the friend that was growing in the military, his his electric bill was $700 a month. Right, compared to mine, it was like a hundred, two hundred, and something. And even though I, that, I think that's high for electric bill, right? Um, later on in life, I was stealing electricity from the neighbor, but that's fine. But <laughs> the neighbor was a dick, racist motherfucker. So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you know, but still, like growing, growing, um, it's not easy. But I, if you you have to get in the groove, it's just like the other stuff, like boardings, you know, skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing. It takes a while to grow, and once you get into it, I think it's 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 good. Like it's satisfying. You get to know the type of dirt. You don't want to buy cheap dirt from the the grow shops. You want to buy the good stuff with the guano in it, you know, and all this other stuff in it, and just you experiment, you know. In California, you can also buy like uh the clones you can learn to clone yourself too you know um but that's that was my experience i grew different variety of shit sometimes i think i, I put too many too many plants in my tent but sometimes these a couple of them but yeah i think when i when i grew and when i harvested um you know from one harvest i had like three pounds of shit man like at one time i was in three pounds is a lot in talk, when we talk about cannabis, right? And I was like, holy shit. And I, I bought those like those airtight jugs, jars from like the store and stuff like that. But I think, um, you know, I was giving away, we I was selling, giving it away too, making butter and making oils and giving that away, making edibles. But then, yeah, I had to find my balance in all that process. You know, I still like to be have mellow stuff. And I, I noticed that the, the, the product that I like using was you know with the with the vaporizer or smoking was the very mild stuff because the stuff that was real strong for me like i started getting paranoid right i actually didn't like it i like doing stuff while, while i i use cannabis i like going to the movies hanging out you know what i'm saying or watching a movie with, with you know friends or something you know whatever man but it's just you have to find your balance some people don't like doing shit they just like being quiet or some people just do, do they do too much Right. And it's just like, chill the fuck out. You're, you're fucking up my vibe. <laughs> but I think I recommend people 
learn to grow their own stuff. And I'm actually going to start posting. I actually have some grow books that I have in, in my, my, my hard drive that I haven't uploaded to the, uh, to the podcast share drive. I'm going to start uploading grow books in there. So people learn to grow themselves, you know, um, I think if anybody has the grow books, please let me know so I can post it on the on the share drive. But yeah, man, like if you're, you know, if you want to get into cannabis, don't rush into it, man, because and don't let people peer pressure you into like doing shit at their pace. Like that shit is not it's just like drinking or it's just like anything else. You don't want to, you know, do too much or like ha- have a bad experience or, you know, get taken advantage of during you know being intoxicated to your own i like taking like two hits the most when you're chilling out so yeah don't uh don't let the peer pressure tell you you got to be smoking cookies and og and ken like you can there's milder stuff out there you got if you can find it and grow it yourself um there's something out there for you there's that's what i'm going for trying to find what's out there for everyone make some nice mild varieties for people who just want to chill. Don't want to get super, super messed up. And, uh, I like them too. I, I, I've grown a one-to-one hybrid. Uh, it's called love from this, uh, breeder called alpha chronic. Unfortunately I lost it. I was trying to keep it around, but I was moving around a lot. Wasn't able to keep the variety around, but, uh, yeah. So now I'm making my own one-to-ones, but that was a really nice one. It was super mild. Like, you know, I have a, higher tolerance than most people but um but i uh it for me it gave me almost like it gave me zero of that kind of effect that i'm used to it doesn't really bother me like the little like you know that uh, like anxiety kind of feeling like for me i can like think that out of my brain like i'm just like you know i just like <laughs> i think just i've just smoked so much even though it hits me sometimes still pretty strong and depending on the variety there's some varieties that for me are like psychedelic side that kind of give me some negative um mm, negative yeah. feelings like uh like one for me is sour diesel has just like this really like it just smacks you it just that smacks you in this way that even the other power strains don't like we call them yeah. power strains the really like high thc percentage with that specific profile that just like hits you really hard um it's good like it's it's terpene profiles like beta caryophylline and myrcene um, and stuff that's like very, you know, they call it narcotic, like a narcotic effect, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, really good for a lot, a lot of people who need it medicinally need that stuff for like physical pains. Uh, it actually helps me a lot with my, uh, my physical pains. Uh, I've, I've, yeah. a lot of, I've done a lot of physical labor and, and, and extreme sports my whole life. So I've got, I've gotten pretty beat up. Um, so I like this, that's those profiles actually are nice for me but i do also enjoy smoking those one-to-one varieties like Mm -hmm. if i if i want to medicate in the morning and i want to also be able to get stuff done um yeah i'm looking uh, i'm looking to make breed a lot of those varieties and cultivate a lot of those varieties and provide some medicine for the people around me um if i end up going the commercial route soon which hopefully is the hopefully the deal and do that co-op style and provide a lot of living for a bunch of comrades but uh yeah yeah um yeah that's totally there's a whole lot to learn about uh like if i could sum it up like there's a lot to learn about 
cannabis and there's a lot to learn about cultivation of plants as well uh and yeah and what i'd say specifically regenerative cultivation as opposed to conventional agriculture uh which we talked about on isaac's podcast if people want to check out indigenous nightmare uh yeah on the last installment of the hemp stuff i got into um conventional versus regenerative ag if people are interested in that stuff uh, but yeah, there's a lot to know out there if you really want to nerd out and, and really figure out what's going on. Uh, I think a good a good app that I used to use way back in the day was that uh, Weedfly one. I was say Weedfly. It gives you all the strains and like people's reviews on the strains and stuff like that. Right? I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, it's really good. I think it's good to cross-reference all of those because like there's, I think, you know, there's that. There's Leafly. There's yeah, Leafly, weed, that too. There's Weed Maps. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so there's like all these different websites and I think they all like are good places to go to find the each person's review because these strains, these varieties affect different people differently. Like uh, yeah. sour diesel hits me pretty strong, but my like met my grow mentor, like that was his favorite strain. Whenever we grew that, he'd always like have to break off a lot of that for himself because that's his favorite. And um it, it it does strains do different things for different people. I think a lot of that is everyone having their own unique neurobiology, uh, and you, yeah. you're you're almost the same way you do with pharmaceuticals. Like some pharmaceutical works for one person, it doesn't work for another person. Uh, yeah. we're all uh, we're all genetically different. We're very we have a lot of variety in our genetic expressions and our neurobiology. So yeah, it's a lot of uh, digging and finding what works for you mm-hmm. and and yeah i think there's some purple strings that i really like the taste i think there's a, a, a factor of taste too you know they're like uh yeah the smell and the taste there was one string called like darth vader uh, you know and i was like oh this shit is like the most purple fucking string it's like it was dark as fuck i was like god damn i went to a, a dispensary in orange county and it's not it doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore and they were selling clones i was like you have a clone of that and they're like no and that's our, our like we protect that strain. I was like, motherfuckers. But that yeah, was a really good, good strain to smoke. And just to, you know, kind of like share a quick story too. I remember like in the 90s, you know, when I was a teenager, like um, we didn't have all these names. Like it was just like chronic. Chronic was the good shit back then or hydro, right? And then it was just like, you know, just fucking bud or whatever. And sometimes they had like that that shit creeper. Like I remember one time buying some weed, smoking it for like 30 minutes and nothing happening. And then it just fucking hit you like a wall. I was like, what kind of shit is this? And my friend was like, oh, that's creeper weed. It creeps up on you. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, but they don't have that. Sh- I don't know if they have that shit still or not, but uh, it's just the, the, you know, obviously, you know, the, the culture has changed. It's like the cannabis cup and shit now. And, you know, the other magazines, I think, you know, going to, when I go to Barnes and Noble, I go like, like, like a little fucking kid. I go to like the, 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 the section where they have all the weed magazines. I'm just in there, you know, I'm reading this shit. I'm like, oh, this is fucking cool. Oh, that looks so fucking cool. Oh, that shit looks fucking tasty. I'm like, oh man. But it's just, I'm just like an admirer too. So, yeah. If you want, I could get, I could try to briefly cover some like, this is this is stuff that I nerded out about as a breeder because I like I, I'm a breeder and I make hybrids, but I also do preservation. Like I haven't been able to do a ton of preservation so far, but like I've pre- preserved one heirloom hybrid that uh, I worked with um, 
and, and steering it in a certain direction in terms of my selections. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I kind of nerd out on all the classic varieties mm -hmm. and try to try to obtain them. A lot of them are nearly impossible to obtain today, although um, generally if there's like a good number of people who are doing a lot of preservation work to keep a lot yeah. of these lines alive. So yeah, I could go over like- Oh yeah, um, what, what's it called? Yeah. Um, so uh, the one I did, I preserved, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's called Dreadbread, which is a hybrid. It's a hybrid of two heirloom varieties uh, by this uh, breeder named Bodhi Seeds. Um, a variety people might be familiar with of his would maybe be, be Goji OG. That's like the one he, that most people know him for. Uh, he's he's not really like a well-known breeder, like in terms of having like a strain that everyone knows, like Blue Dream or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's in the cannabis community. He's very well known. He just did a project with Burner. People probably know who Burner is. Uh, that the weed. He's like the the famous weed guy, the weed rapper who, um, like has who owns Cookies, the Cookies brand. Mm -hmm. um, one of the owners of Cookies. Uh, so, um. So he's like well known among among us cannabis people. He's like a legend. He's like kind of the poster. He he's like kind of the wh who everyone thinks of when you think of heirloom preservation and mm -hmm. uh, quote unquote land race preservation. That's something I could touch on real quick. Like land race, the concept of land race, um, kind of uh, the problem with it. Like even though it's like kind of a useful term because it's like we use it to describe like a thai variety from thailand or like mm -hmm. a, an afghan variety from afghanistan um a congolese variety from the congo uh like these so it's like kind of useful for that but like we, we've come more around to calling them heirlooms to give credit to the fact that this is a cultivated plant that like these aren't really wild varieties like these are these are selectively bred varieties to be medicine uh, mm -hmm. by the people of the himalayas primarily the people, mm -hmm. people around the himalayas like a thai variety that you find which you don't find these days i'll get into that but like i don't want to stop um, right there wait, wait, hold up because i i know yeah. the, before I, we go too far and then i you know i have to go back to this i do know that the story of Thomas Jefferson. First off, Thomas Jefferson is a colonial piece of shit, right? For other reasons too, for anthropology, if you know the history of anthropology. But this motherfucker went into China, if you know what he did, he stole seeds from China that he wasn't supposed to like take out because they also um, grew cannabis and they were protective of their strains as well, right? In China. Um, so yeah, that is what I just want to say that, you know, some, there's a history there's a whole history of fucking European motherfuckers going to other places and stealing strains. You can look yeah. into that. Go ahead. Go I ahead. I can Sorry. touch on that too, actually. Like, I guess I'll comment real quick on that still exists today. And like, uh, and actually like the kind of weed renaissance that happened of mm -hmm. like creating all of the hybrids that was like, that was white people in their position of like all of the, the famous original breeders are these white Dutch guys who mm -hmm. through the, their privilege of being in a colonial center, uh, 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 colonial power, uh, had access to all these varieties from the world um, and were able to make 
uh, lucrative businesses off of the work of, and kind of take credit to, to what I was saying about giving credit to the people who bred these ex varieties into existence, who, which are the, the people of Thailand and Afghanistan and China. But China, uh, as we know, first of all, was where the, where the plant comes from, uh, as we understand is like the, the origin point uh, is where we can trace back the furthest uh, known historical use of the plant and mm -hmm. where it was first cultivated as medicine and, and uh, as a general useful crop. Uh, but yeah, so like, like haze, like the first mm -hmm. like hybrids were like, uh, I was going to get into this anyway, the first hybrids that exist were like hybrids of heirloom varieties, like of different heirloom varieties, regional heirlooms, we call them, mm -hmm. uh, an heirloom from a region, like it can even be broken down into very specific regions, like a Kush would be like from the Kush mountains. So did you can, Afghan, is Afghan Kush an heirloom? Yeah, so the Kush Mountains are in, like, part of the Kush Mountains are in mm -hmm. Afghanistan, right? Okay. So, yeah, yeah, that's what an Afghan Kush would be, yeah, from the Kush region of, of Afghanistan. Of so I grew, I grew, I grew an OG Kush once. I don't know, that was an heirloom. That's a, OG Kush is kind of a weird story. Like, you got, if, if people are super interested in the history of OG, there's a couple of podcasts that cover it. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that that's kind of a misnomer, like, like, it's kind of apparent that some sort of Afghan variety. Oh, you're muted. Sorry, uh, was was used. Some sort of Afghan variety was used in the in the creation of that variety, but it's it's a misnomer because it's not a pure heirloom variety. So to call it a Kush, I mean, like OG Kush, you could say like that's to like denote that it's an OG for like that comes from a Kush and maybe exhibits a lot of traits that mm. Afghan Kushes exhibit, but I've grown the strain and it's very much a polyhybrid, what we call it. Uh, and I'll say that quickly. I'll, I'll touch quickly on that, what polyhybrids are uh, so that I, I noted what uh, I, I talked about what an heirloom is. It's a, you know, a regional heirloom from that was cultivated uh, for, for hundreds or to thousands of years in a region uh, mostly to where it's indigenous to the, uh, around the Himalayas. It was supposedly brought later to places like Africa and South America um, and, and North America, like these continents. But I think generally it doesn't grow too well wild up here uh, in the mm -hmm. Northern hemisphere. But, uh, but so a polyhybrid is um, what all of the cannabis that you see in a dispensary that you find from somewhere even though we use the nomenclature of sativa and indica as a breeder myself, we don't use that. Like, not, you know, we use it like to kind of describe profiles. Like if it has an uplifting profile, like it's easy to call it a sativa. So people know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the actual lineage of these plants, there's no pure sativas that you find out there that people are growing because pure sativas are equatorial varieties that no one would ever grow for to to turn a profit because it takes over sometimes over twice as long to grow as these polyhybrids hmm. these polyhybrids have been bred to to finish up in 9 weeks 
uh, I have seeds of heirloom equatorial varieties that take 22 weeks to 24 weeks to flower. So no one's grown that to sell you, bud. So, you know, uh, so when someone says they have a pure sativa that know that that maybe has the profile you're looking for, if you're looking for a sativa, but that's mm-hmm. not what a real pure quote unquote sativa is. And we you don't know even that, use yeah. that. Yeah. We don't even really use that in breeding either. Like, sativa like we'll say like an equatorial variety like well yeah we call it a we we try to be accurate as to where what region it is um so that we can specifically know what we're talking about Mm -hmm. Uh, and these so these heirloom varieties that's what made the like the first guys those those dutch guys back when the dutch scene Mm -hmm. was the forefront of cannabis uh that they were taking uh what they call Oaxacans, like there's like a Mexican cultivated variety that had been cultivated since uh, colonialism in Mexico Mm -hmm. uh, since they brought the plant over. Um, But yeah, there's this, there's a, there's a gene pool called Oaxacans, like, and like, so that, that went into making uh, that Thai heirloom Thai varieties and Afghans. So like the first, the first iteration of hybrids uh, were were like original hybrids, what we call original hybrids. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there's the first time people were taking all of these regional heirlooms from different places in the world and making new varieties out of them. And a lot, uh, like a lot of it was like being able to take the stretchiness of an equatorial variety and cross it to a quick flowering resinous Afghan that could finish up in nine to 12 weeks. Um, so it had like the stretchy yielding characteristics of an heirloom variety, but yeah, it was in a small, smaller, more manageable, quicker finishing plant. Uh, so the, the, that's like the original hybrids. And then now you have like generations and generations later where now the United States, like here in the, uh, U.S. like this is the forefront of cannabis breeding and and the cannabis culture. Uh, all of the you know everyone wants American genetics like everywhere around the world. In Spain, why is Spain. that? Why is that? It's just like now it's like this is where the new like renaissance of cannabis is happening. That's where, wild. <laughs> uh, like the the U.S. is like we have all the like breeders like we we're doing all the work. Like you buy you don't want to buy seeds from answer if, if I'll give that quick tip. Uh, don't buy seeds from Amsterdam. Oh, really? <laughs> they know, they, yeah, they don't know what the fuck they're doing anymore. Uh, <laughs> to, to be a dick about it, but like, yeah, um, yeah, they they used to be like, like you know, the old timers will be like Amsterdam, but like, yeah, uh, Amsterdam was not like back cool in my day, yeah, so, old timers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, like it used to be. It used to be that was the forefront of cannabis breeding, and then like, now they're really just like compared to people here. Uh, they're super sloppy and they don't know even like what they're growing. Like half the time they're like, this is cookies. And it's just like some random plant. Like they don't even know what they don't know what it is, but yeah, the original varieties that came out of, uh, out of Amsterdam were like the hazes and the skunks. Oh Um, yeah. I remember this. Yeah. uh, And a lot of, and Northern lights. uh, Mm, I was thinking about that too. Yeah. Yep, Northern Lights, uh, like the vintage blueberry kind of stuff. Like the vintage blueberry is an American variety, but like the stuff that went into making that, the early indicas, 
mm-hmm. that they would just call Afghans. Uh, like, yeah, most of it's just, yeah, they'd call it an Afghan. There's a few other varieties, like so, chocolate, uh, chocolate tie. Uh, is uh, is sorry, Afghan Kush an heirloom or not? I'm thinking about like Afghan Kush, Hindu Kush, purple purple Kush, banana Kush. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't the, know if these are, are Yeah, like Kush is kind of like, they kind of used in breeding, they use that nomenclature to like, because like I was saying, like these are polyhybrids. So this is a hybrid of a hybrid of a hybrid and it's got all sorts of stuff in its lineage mm. at this point. Uh, it's not a pure heirloom variety anymore. But but that's a good, it's a good way to like denote that it has to 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 note the characteristics that it has like characteristics like a kush like it's a polyhybrid but it grows like that's how they'll put kush on the end of it if it's got like that really dense resinous and like uh, a lot of times they try to like it, it it means it has like some sort of narcotic effect and maybe might make you give you munchies and make you sleepy and uh like really rock you give that couch lock we call it couch lock right um where you just like are stuck in your couch um but uh yeah, as generally, like when people say Afghan or or Kush or yeah, Hindu Kush, like um or even like Kashmir, these are all very like general terms. Like unless like usually if you if it gets specific to an heirloom, it'll like you'll like they'll the breeder or the preservationist will tell you the exact region it came from like i have i like to get into like my little seed collection which is very small compared to a lot of people um i have a multitude of different uh afghan varieties like i have this um like kundos village times mazar the bulk region uh i have some from young uh, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but I have stuff from all different, all different kinds of regions of Afghanistan and, uh, and from, uh, Kashmir, different mm-hmm. regions of Kashmir and different regions of India. Like I have an Orissa Indian variety. That's like more equatorial because it's a se- further Southern, uh, province of India. And yeah, that's like that when you really get into if you like really get into seeds and heirlooms and stuff like it starts getting real specific as to where like it comes from yeah i mean it's it's changing i can see i can see that it is you know like i said with cannabis cup because maybe it was around but i don't remember as a teenager cannabis cup i think i started noticing more when i started reading the magazines i was like oh fuck i want to I want to be a judge. I always imagine a, a cannabis cup judge is fucking blazing out, you know, <laughs> trying everything. <laughs> but that's not how it, I don't. That's not how it works, right? So <laughs> you can be a judge if we'll start a cup, and you can be a judge. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I was just like, I don't know if I want to be ever be a judge. I don't like getting that that stones. Like, what the fuck, you know. Um, yeah, but, you know, growing, you know, I say, you know, as I was, you know, living my life growing up and seeing all these names, you know, growing in California, Kush was something that's good. Oh, I, I got some Kush, but it was never like specific what it was. Maybe it was just slang. Like when I moved to, to Texas, uh, people were like, uh, I'll be like, you know, do you, you know, what, what kind of weed do you have? They'll be like, Reggie. I mean, what the fuck is Reggie? Right, like uh, I don't... Reggie. Reggie just means bad weed in my. Yeah, uh, that's I learned that. <laughs> I was like, "What the fuck is you know?" Uh, there's another term we use in in um, 
also called okay. work work weed maybe like the work because you know you just have it to make money yeah the, the, um weed. there was this uh i wanted this dispensary and they had like it was like really cheap you know eights and you know quarters whatever and i was like why is this so cheap and they'll be like oh it's just the shavings that were left under the jar and these mixed it together variety i forgot the, the term but yeah the shake yeah the shake there you go yeah so yeah, when you get bad weed, you know, it was like shake, you know, we didn't call it right Re Reggie. So I was like, what the fuck? Like, um, yeah, yeah. I, I doubt you guys had as bad a weed as I've had here when I was a kid. We call we'd call it like I've seen pictures of just call it brown. Let's call it sometimes it's just brown, dude. That brown no. brick weed that came across came from that was grown in a field in Mexico and it died in the field and they just harvested it when it was brown. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that that's uh um yeah that like that real really like black market like cartel weed you know <laughs> yeah know. but I, you know for my because i lived in Se around seattle and i i would say the weed is not as good or the cannabis is not as good as like california there but the dispensaries are nice as fuck. I mean, it's very like they, they put your, your cannabis in a machine to make sure they microscope it, whatever, with this machine. You can see it on the screen. Like, oh, look, we don't have it. It doesn't have any bugs. It doesn't have any chemicals. Oh, yeah, I was going to go back to I, when I used to grow. I used to like, I had this little micro, microscope thing where you can open it and then look at the trichomes. It's like a, it's almost like a monocle thing <laughs> I had when I was growing. And it was, I bought it from the growth store. So, I would know when to fucking harvest it. He told me it's with the harvest when a certain percentage of the trichomes are a certain color. So I actually yeah, like some amber trichomes. Yeah. So I was just like looking at my trichomes to this fucking little monocle looking thing. And I was like, uh, yeah, I miss it. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, this is the most like diverse episode I've ever had. We go, we go from Marxism to fucking barding to fucking <laughs> cannabis. <laughs> I'm doing mad goofy shit over here. It's... Yeah, wow. we, we both are. Funny stuff. <laughs> no, but I think but people should learn. And there's a lot of things to learn about this stuff. And it could be overwhelming. But I think the moment you get into it, you know, it's good to have mentors. It's good to have um, go at your own pace. And I think people should grow their own plants. I know people that started just growing their own plants. You're like one plant outside, you know, certain times. You can, you can look that up too, the certain times of year to grow cannabis outside wherever you live. There's a website for that, you know. Um, and then, you know, you can grow it in, inside your house. I, I, I will say cats like eating that shit. So if you have a cat, they will eat your fucking I have a video of one of my cats fucking going to my tent, eating the plant, you know, eating the fucking leaves, which is I was like... At a certain point, I didn't mind it because it was the bottom leaves and it was trimming him. I was like, ah, okay, whatever. But he just loves fucking munching on those fucking leaves. I was like, oh, cool, man. He's going to get fucking wasted. So, yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. But I think um, I think we're good now. So anybody listening, you know, we got to know Derek. And appreciate the insight you have on Marxism. Uh, I think we connected, um, especially last year when people were like, they were in your inbox talking shit about me, and then they were in my inbox talking shit about you, different people, like trying to like us not to talk to each other. And I was just like, and I, I know you reached out to me, you were like, 
you know, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah, man, like I was just like, uh, it's this weird behavior, online behavior. And I think because of that, we started talking more, right? And we start, actually started talking through FaceTime and exchanging an idea on, you know, on decolonial theory and all these things we talked about. And I was like, this is a really cool dude. Uh, and I'm glad that, I mean, it, you know, it, I'm glad we, we connected and I got to know you and I hope other people online listening get a better perspective on who you are, that you are actually indigenous to Guam and you have the, <clears throat> your family has experience, you know, I mean, obviously your, your people do in Guam of being colonized by the Americans and by the, the Japanese too, right? Japanese, um, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, yep. And the Spanish before that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's one of those things. The Japanese were, you know, I'm not saying more or less brutal, but they were pretty brutal in their, in their uh, early 1900s fucking colonization of, of uh, the Pacific. I heard a lot of brutal stories, especially in the Philippines and other islands. They were just genocide. In China, mainland, it was a genocide. You know, so I think, um, you know, we, we, I hope people check out the Carlos Oz series because I think that, it's a colonization that people don't understand that the Japanese are also colonizers <laughs> on that side of the world. So, yeah. But yeah, it, do you have any comments before we go? Yeah, I just think, like to take a sec to appreciate you and your podcast. And uh, it, I left out, like, in my uh, development as a as a Marxist, uh, as anti colonial Marxist, it's like um, when I was really getting into. Uh, theory and and like and starting to get a bearing for the movements here um in the united states like uh i sought you out because i was like i was like where are the indigenous marxists like i was like where are the where are the native marxists here like there's got to be someone who's like who's talking about this from that perspective because it's it was so i i was thinking i was like it was so lacking i was like where's where is this i want to I know there's got to be indigenous Marxist content out there. And like through search functions, I was able to find you. I think it was on Instagram. Um, mm -hmm. where, and I was like, oh, cool. Like, what's this? Uh, what's this podcast? And I've learned so much from your podcast and from all of and from your uh, from your share drive and just from talking to you and interact and our interactions like and um, our friendship like that. It's a. Uh, I just want to take a moment to appreciate you and everything you do with this, uh, every everything you do with the podcast and beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, you're happy to have, happy to be a part of it. Yeah, invite like I mean, vice versa. I'm I'm glad to you know know you, and I wish you lived closer so we can like smoke and fucking board <laughs> and talk oh, more yeah. through you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're gonna chill. We'll chill. Let's yeah, <laughs> one day soon. Um, but yeah, so people listening, thank you. Um, this year it started off kind of weird. Um, but I'm, you know, uh, I've been doing some interviews. I don't want to say where, because people are stalkers. Um, and, uh, if I get a job, this job that I'm applying for, I might not be interviewing as much. Um, Derek might be doing some interviews on himself, whatever his pace is, whatever he feels comfortable with, you know, on here. And, um, We'll see. We'll see where the podcast goes. I'll still be active on the social medias and, you know, um, I hope I want to thank you, Derek, again. And we, you know, we always talk every fucking day. So it's not like, you know, 
I'll, I'll see you soon. <laughs> we, we several group chats. So I'll see you soon. So don't yeah, don't hang thanks up. Thanks for there. having me. <laughs>